write it down. It sounds so silly because you hear all of the things that I did and I took action on to get here. And that is absolutely part of the equation. But it really all started with an intention. And I think writing it down was a powerful way to solidify that intention. Welcome to the Exponential Growth Podcast, where we demystify what it takes to break into tech. I'm your host, James Hudnall, and my goal is to highlight real-life examples of people moving into careers they love, so you can too. Hey, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Alyssa Jackson, a program manager at LinkedIn. Now, like most of us, her career path hasn't been a linear one, and today we're going to dive in and learn more about Alyssa and her journey into tech. Alyssa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, James. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And why don't you please introduce yourself briefly to the audience? Who is Lissa Jackson? Well, I am a program manager and also an instructor at LinkedIn. I've been with LinkedIn for about a year and a half, though I've been in tech for almost four years and counting now. And what I do at LinkedIn is really provide training experiences to help LinkedIn's customers learn about our product. So I'd really, you know, titles aside, uh, I would really call myself a, a trainer. That's really my passion is, is learning and development. And I've really found that that niche at, at LinkedIn, which is, which is really wonderful. So when you were a girl, did you ever imagine you'd work at a company like LinkedIn? Mm, well... If you go all the way back to when I was really young, you know, I grew up in mostly New Hampshire um, and my mother's kind of highest dream for me was she thought maybe that someday I could be like a manager of like a Dunkin' Donuts or maybe like a food chain, which I think would have been a really good and ambitious goal for me. You know, my I'm a first generation college student. And I also grew up in the foster care system. You know, my my family really was in poverty a lot of that time and really struggled. And so, you know, initially, no, this would be so astronomically different than maybe what I would have imagined for myself. But over time, I I actually started going to like a residential private school that was sort of like a home for kids when I was about eight years old. And that was when I really started understanding a little bit more what my potential was. And I was getting guided by people who really saw my potential. So, you know, fast forward a little bit, I ended up going to a private high school called the Putney School, which is in Vermont. It's sort of just over the border from where I was living in New Hampshire. And the moment that it all changed for me, you know, I was a full scholarship student at this very expensive and and what some might call a prestigious school. And this guy, Reed Hoffman, Mm -hmm. uh, gifted his first book, which was called The Startup of You, to my graduating class. And he actually came and spoke as the commencement speaker at the class the year before I graduated. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about LinkedIn. And that was when I think, you know, that was about probably 2011, 2012. So LinkedIn was really starting to pick up and take off. And I read the entire book and I I still have the original. I have all the notes in the margin. And, you know, Reed talked about this idea of treating yourself as an entrepreneur. And he, of course, was really 
you know, evangelizing LinkedIn as well. So I made my first LinkedIn account and that right around the time that I was probably 16, 17 is when the dream to work in tech and specifically to work at LinkedIn was was planted. And you can see that it eventually did come to life. So originally, no, it would have never been my ambition. But over time, as I got exposed to these inspirations, including the co-founder himself, Reid Hoffman, it, it was still an ambitious goal, but I did I did make it here. Yeah, that's amazing you had that exposure at such an early age, but more so, Lisa, it's amazing that you kind of latched onto that and were really, I guess, inspired and let that be a motivating factor that no doubt helped propel you and uh, served as a, a tailwind to help you land where you are today. So let's, I want to go back a little bit to what you said, where when you were in the, I think it was the elementary school before the the private school itself, where I think you had mentioned that maybe some of the teachers were recognizing some of your talents and maybe you were starting to to grow into that. I'm curious, what attributes were they identifying and were they attributes that you recognized about yourself prior to that, or did they kind of help you maybe introspect a little bit? Mm, that's a that's a great question. So the the place where I landed was called it has kind of a unique name. It's called Kernhatton Homes. It's a home for children. And it was technically at the time I was in middle school. And previously to that, when I was going to to public school in my hometown, you know, elementary system, I was coming very close to failing out of elementary school. Mm. I was very close to having a truancy officer, which is, you know, uh, somebody who would get after you for not attending school enough. But none of that was really my fault. And I didn't know whether I was just not intelligent or, or you know, I think I had some unaddressed learning differences that never came up there. But really, it was the environment that I was in. So being in a place where, you know, I have three meals a day and I like those basic needs are taken care of having structure, waking up at the same time every day, like these very basic things that I think not just children, but everybody needs. That was when I realized that it it wasn't me. You know, I wasn't the reason I was failing out. And uh, I got involved in everything. I had just this voracious desire to participate in everything from music to art and really try it all. And I think if nothing else, it wasn't even just potential. It's just that the adults there saw my joy in exploring all of these things. And they also saw that, you know, it's not just about can you do math well and can you do all of these things. I've had to catch up sort of my entire life. And that that doesn't fully go away when you sort of miss I feel like I really missed like first through about fifth grade, right? Yeah. And that's definitely impacted me. But the the drive was there. I think that's really what they they saw. Yeah, it's it's amazing that you finally got that support that you needed, and you were able to really blossom and and to start, I guess, focusing on things beyond, like you said, the the basic needs of life. So, yeah, that that's amazing that you worked through that. And and I still I, I want to reiterate that uh, I, I think it's profound that you were able to make these realizations at such an early age. I always, I, I try not to compare, but I think back to myself and even at like 25, Lisa, I didn't have anything together. I, I was just going through the motions and I, I'm constantly amazed by guests like you that have these realizations early on. And, and I think that's just a testament to, to you and obviously your journey so far. So 
Okay. So you go through that. You're inspired by Reed. You're in this private high school. At this point, it sounded like the, the LinkedIn bug may have been planted for you. What was the next goal? Were you going to go to college? Did you have a, a real plan there that you're going to play out? Yeah, I mean, and and thank you for what you said. I think there's also, there's a certain hunger that is part of the desire to escape poverty, right? You're equally parts focused on maybe dreaming big. And there's also an element of I simply need to find ways to support myself because nobody else is going to do it for yeah. me. Um, and so I started to dream about college and being the first person to go to college. And one of the main messages I heard at that point, especially from a lot of well-meaning adults in my life, was this message of you are never going to get a full scholarship to college, hmm. especially not a private or otherwise considered prestigious college. And I think at that point, I had developed my sense of self and belief in myself enough that there was something that said, I think they're wrong, right? They would say things like, well, you're not an athlete and you're not, you know, they'd give me all of the lists, the long list of things that I was not and how unlikely it would be to get a full scholarship, maybe a partial scholarship, but there was a lot of pressure on me to go to a school that's in Pennsylvania. It's called the Milton Hershey School. It is associated with the candy bars. Like every time nice. you buy a Hershey's candy bar, you are supporting this really wonderful school in Pennsylvania. And the thing is, is that when students graduate from uh, high school or the 12th grade in the Milton Hershey system, they get college paid for them. Hmm. That's one of the really great aspects of that school. And they they do great things. But when I visited that school, I felt in my gut that it wasn't the place for me. And so that's how I actually ended up at the high school, which is where I found Reed. But um, I, I just knew that, you know, despite what everybody was telling me, there had to be a way to get a full scholarship to to college. So I set out on applying. I, I used a lot of programs. There are some great programs like the TRIO program, for example, um, that's put in place for low-income students to have a better shot at college, you know, getting some of the fees waived to actually take some of the tests and and, and those types of things. So I worked really hard. I would work over the summer, uh, both studying and and trying to have jobs to kind of get all of that in place. And so I got not only one, but actually two full scholarships to college. Uh, I was rejected from a lot of universities, but I got a full scholarship to the University of New Hampshire. Nice. That was kind of my first choice, my home state school. And then I also got a full scholarship to uh, Skidmore College in upstate New York, which was a really big deal because it's a private school. It's not an inexpensive school. And so, of course, that was the the choice that I made. And Skidmore ended up being a, a really wonderful four-year experience for me. And I, I sort of got to look back and say, like, I know all of you were well-meaning, but you were wrong. Yeah, look what I did. <laughs> I, I, it is possible. And I'm incredibly grateful to this day for Skidmore, you know, for that opportunity, because that definitely helped me along my career path as well. Yeah. I, uh, a couple of things there. I think the first one I want to ask is you had mentioned that you were rejected from a lot of the other colleges that you applied to. Did that, I guess, dampen your spirits at all? Or were you confident that something was going to work out? 
I think at that point I had sort of embraced like a sense of surrender to the whole thing that like whatever would happen would happen. I think I was worried because, you know, who was going to give me a loan? I mean, maybe somebody would have. I, I don't know what the reality of that would have been, but it's not like I was in a situation where I got to like adopt a parent's FICO score or something. I mean, I think my literally my credit score was probably like a fourth. Can it even be as low as 430? It was probably below a 500 mm. right at that point. So I I don't know what my options would have been in that case. I'm sure I would have figured it out, but I also wasn't surprised when I got the letter in the mail and uh, from Skidmore saying like, we have covered your entire tuition. Yeah. No. And I just want to go back to the point you said, or with the mindset where whatever is going to happen is going to happen. And I feel like that's so powerful, Lisa. I feel like that translates to just about anything that you're trying to do in life. And in my mind, it doesn't mean to just have a cavalier attitude and just, you know, sleepwalk through life. But as long as you've got a plan in place and you're taking feedback and uh, at least in my opinion, revising your approach, I feel like letting the, the chips fall where they may, I feel like that's one of the best things you can do because to your point, there are other circumstances that you may not foresee as to why you got some of those rejections. And I think if you can get yourself to that mindset where whatever happens, happens, I'm going to do the best I can. If it works out great, if not, I know there's something else. I feel like that's so powerful. And I just want to come back and highlight that for the audience listening. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there's power in knowing that you've done everything that you can. I mean, that's why I was able to come from that place of what I'll call surrender is just, you know, once the applications are in and you've you've taken all the steps, there is nothing else that you can do to control that process. Yeah. So you might as well let it go. Yeah. Yeah. You've done all that you can. And I think I saw on your LinkedIn that you studied business. And I'm, I'm curious, did you have a an ultimate plan with that? Were you going to leverage this business degree and go get a job at LinkedIn? Or did you have something else in mind? That was, I think, the idea. I really, and this is, you know, where I think, you know, to this point in the story, it's like, I dream it, it becomes, I dream it, it becomes. But my goal was to go into tech right out of the gate, you know, graduate mm. and then go, I, I literally wrote in my journal, which was, you know, part of setting the intention around this around 2016, right around the time I graduated, I will work for my dream company, uh, Google or LinkedIn. Hmm. That's what I put in there. However, you know, Skidmore is a wonderful school. It's certainly not one of those schools that we may think about as, you know, a feeder for for big tech. Yeah. It it's not really a path anybody had forged before, right? A lot of people go into consulting and sales and things like that. So I applied to a lot of internships and I tried to network with, you know, I did all the things that I could. I networked with, you know, people who worked in tech and who worked at Google. There really wasn't a LinkedIn presence, so I didn't have that opportunity, but I networked with Skidmore alums who went to Google and I had some great conversations, but it, something just wasn't aligning there. And so what I ended up landing into was a world I never intended to join, which was the world of retail. Mm -hmm. I ended up being an intern and then working full-time for Target, okay. which was interesting. It was my, fr I, you know, it, it checked a lot of the boxes in the sense that it was my first, I'll call it my big girl job. It was my first big girl job and it did check the box of I'm now out of poverty. Mm. 
right? I was making $50,000 a year and I was technically at a management position right out of college. And at the same time, I was working in a store and I would sometimes have, you know, people, I, I was actually working in the town uh, and in the district that's right around the college I graduated from in New York. So I would have people who would come in and like, as a manager, I have absolutely you know, I, I think this is the way it should be, but I would jump on a cash register sometimes, or I might go help bring in carts. You know, I think that's the mindset that a manager who's really in the field has to have. But I couldn't help but feel the like eyeballs on me when students who were still going to the school would come in and kind of like see me at a cash register. Mm. Not that that should be something they look down on, but like just truly i do think that they kind of looked at me and were like what wasn't that girl like the leader of every single club like what is she doing like ringing out people at target yeah not that and yeah that that just kind of i i felt really stuck because i wasn't where i intended to be i was in a good place but not the place that i had aimed for yeah that, that's an interesting dichotomy because it sounds like you're enjoying it it sounds like you're leading by example in this management position and doing the things that you would ask of the other employees but at the same time you feel this i don't want to call it shameless but for, for lack of a better word this maybe this guilt that maybe you could become more and how these other people from that school might be seeing you so i'm curious how did you work through that and i guess what happened next mm. yeah it, it... I think I, I did struggle for a while. I mean, I was even talking to some of my friends that I graduated with. And, you know, I, I on the one hand, like, like I said, there were a lot of points that I enjoyed, but it, the, I wasn't a fit for the culture of retail. Hmm. Like retail, you know, if anybody listening has worked in retail, which many, many people have, I would say most of us have a shared experience, which is that it, it can be tough, especially when you're working with you know, customers directly, or you're working with de-escalating customers, or maybe even, you know, service-based, like if you worked in a restaurant, it's very similar. It's not easy. It's really not. And I was working a minimum of, of 60 hours a week. Mm. I also had an hour-long commute. And sometimes closer to the holidays, I would work up to 80 hours a week, and that would be like six days a week. And so mm. it's like, where in that time do you find personal development moments or like how do you you know also get a degree like you sort of my experience was that I sort of got stuck in that so I, I kept applying to jobs I probably applied to hundreds of jobs uh, in my about two and a half years that I was at Target and at some point I knew despite how tired and burnt out I feel I know there has to be another way and I know that I need to do something that feels more fulfilling to me than this because it's not fulfilling my soul. I don't really feel like I'm working towards a purpose or anything like that. So I actually got a certification in life coaching, which mm -hmm. sounds a little bit ironic because you would think in if you just looked at that one snippet of my experience, which is like now I'm working as a target manager and I feel miserable maybe that person doesn't sound like they should be a life coach. But I also knew that, you know, there is this whole story to who I am. And I knew that I had gotten from a very bad place to a pretty good place and that I was pretty good at helping other people do that. Now, it was supposed to take me six months. It took me almost a year to actually complete that certification just because of how time starved I was and how mentally burnt out I was. But I did eventually receive that. 
And through building a coaching business on the side, I learned a lot of skills, right? I learned podcasting and audio editing and how to write a newsletter and about email marketing campaigns and the software it takes to book clients with and you know how to actually have a sales call with yeah. a client and get them to sign up for your coaching packages how to build a website i built my own wordpress website nice you know in all my extra hours and that is actually when everything started to change right it was those skills that i was learning and i applied to a small tech company that's called higher logic um, and they had just acquired an email marketing, actually two email marketing companies. And what made the difference in that application is that I included my personal website that I had built with my application. Hmm. And my manager, or the person who eventually became my manager, saw that and thought, well, if Lissa can build this website and sends newsletters to her customers, clients, whatever you want to call them, I think she can do this. There's so many translatable skills that, that I just heard you reel off, Lissa. And to those listening, I think at the highest level, and I want your opinion on this as well. So you're you're in this retail job that you know your heart's not really in it, but at the same time, you haven't given up. You're you're really hustling, even though you're working sixty to eight hours a week. You're trying to do everything you can to get these certifications to learn new skills and eventually that compounds into this opportunity that presents itself. So what I'm hearing there is I, I know a lot of people now, I talk to a lot of people now that are applying to jobs and it's a tough market right now at the time that we're recording this. And I imagine it would have been easy short term for you to give up and just to stay at Target. I mean, I'm sure you could project forward, you could have a safe career there, but I'm sure too, because this is very similar to my own path, you'll probably have regretted having done that. So to anyone out there listening that's struggling with that, just hear Lissa, hear the, the moves that she made and the skills that she kept building and see how those translated into her next play. So I just wanted to go back and to talk about that. And I definitely wanted to pull the thread on the life coaching. You kind of went there on your own, which is great. And so you get this job going from Target. And then what was your mindset like there? Was it a, almost like a fresh slate where Maybe at this point, you've kind of made it, even though you already had that job prior to what was going through your mind? Mm. Well, first of all, I was incredibly excited, right? Because in a lot of ways, it it fit the way that I was trying to feel, right? I always said this is sort of my life coach hat on, but when people set goals, you know, I help them realize that sometimes it's not about the title or the name of the company. It's it's this question of how do you really want to feel mm. when you get that thing or you meet that goal? And, you know, working at this granted smaller tech company, I think it had about 300 employees after all these acquisitions. So by no means was it big, but it also been around for about 10 years. So it wasn't a startup either. So it had this maturity it was relatively small, which was comfortable. So I used that experience to really learn everything that I could about training in a corporate context and training at a tech company. And for the moment, I did kind of turn off aspirations to go do something else, right? Because I felt very happy and I felt like I was in a good place. I had 
more flexibility. I liked the people that I worked with. I truly liked what I was doing. And I had a boss who really mentored me. He had 20 years of experience being a trainer for another tech company. And he gave me so much wisdom and value and helped me understand, you know, how to set up trainings, how to keep uh, people engaged, how to, you know, do everything from the recording process. If you're creating like a recorded training to tips for um, live, I did a lot of live in-person trainings and I was, I was really happy. I, I stayed there for three years until at about year three, when the company kind of started changing and growing and shifting, and I realized there was no path for me to go forward, that's when I started to get the itch to say, you know, I'm happy here, but I think it's time for my next growth opportunity. And what was really cool about that is the years of experience that I had both as an entrepreneur, right? Those are all still relevant, transferable skills because I didn't stop running my side business, but the skills and that I had learned being a trainer at this smaller company made me the perfect fit for the role that I now have at LinkedIn, right? And they told us in my, as they call them, classes, class of LinkedIners, the acceptance rate that year, a year and a half ago, was I was told was 0.04%, mm. right? Not very high odds of getting an application through. So, yeah. you know, I, I didn't necessarily set this all up intentionally, but now I can look back and tell people that if you're lacking skills, right, going and getting a degree isn't the only way. Right. If your blocker is that you can't get a job, that's understandable, but nobody can stop you from starting your own business, right? And that's where I've learned probably, you know, there was a little bit on the job experience, but there's still a big chunk of those skills and those experiences that have come from running an online business. Because I create online courses and I do live trainings as part of my business as well. Yeah. Now, I want to talk about all that. Before we do that, I want to really dive into the LinkedIn transition that you made, just in case any of that translates into the audience, not necessarily trying to get a job at LinkedIn, but perhaps a company like LinkedIn. So I'm curious when you're at this smaller company, Lissa, what steps did you take? Were you doing the, the shotgun approach where LinkedIn was one of many that you were applying to? Or did you have more of a targeted approach? What did that look like? Hmm. Well, I think I, I was in a fortunate position. And I think this is the best case scenario uh, position to be in, which is that I liked my job. And I felt this small nudge to say it's time to grow. Hmm. So I wasn't in a position where I was sort of desperately applying to jobs or, you know, I could sort of take it at my own pace. So, you know, I started applying and just made it a habit to apply to a couple, you know, let's say five jobs a week and start interviewing. And what was interesting about that is, you know, the theme of rejection comes back again because I got rejected from a lot, right? This was even before, you know, as you said, we're kind of in a an interesting economic spot with a lot of layoffs at the time of this recording. But at that time, not so much, right? It was just sort of regular economic circumstances. Yeah, I was receiving a lot of rejections. I had 
so many no's. I think I counted them, which is actually, I would say, relatively low numbers, probably based on now sharing this experience with others. But I believe I counted 57 rejections prior to actually getting an interview Hmm. at LinkedIn. And for some of them, I would actually get to the final round. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would assume that they were interviewing maybe me and like one other or maybe two other candidates. And in the end, they'd say, "Mm, we chose not to go with you. And I remember feeling really disappointed. Again, I'm okay. I'm still at this job that I'm enjoying. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, there's some confidence in that. But at the same time, it was hard for me to not start telling this story to myself of like, well, maybe I'm not as great at this as I think, or maybe I'm not as strongly positioned as, you know, a learning and development professional as I think. But now looking back, if I had not been rejected from I can't even remember the names of the companies. I mean, that's sort of how, in retrospect, it was not actually as important as I had weighted it at the time. Yeah. But if I had not had the opportunity taken away from me, I wouldn't have been able to stay in the very long interview process that then came around for LinkedIn. I'm sure as you hear about the experience of getting into tech, it is certainly true with LinkedIn that the the interview process is long and sometimes arduous. So I was able to then focus all of my attention and all of my creativity and effort on just landing LinkedIn while working a job full time, which is not, you know, easier said than done. But because I had been rejected, I paused and just focused on LinkedIn. And I think that made a big difference. Yeah. And I want to come back to that as well. But before we do, I think you've already spoken to this, Lissa, but, but I'm curious, again, when you were going through all of this rejection, how did you work through that? How did you, I guess it did help because like you said, you had a job that it was, I guess, good enough. It wasn't allowing you to grow like you wanted to grow. But aside from that, I don't know if there's anything else you can speak to, to as to how you were able to kind of put that out of your mind and to, to fight that self-doubt that, uh, that I heard you mention had started to crop up a little bit. Because I know that that would translate to many people listening right now. It's it's easier said than done, but I, I always come back to this phrase that uh, redirection or rejection is protection. Mm-hmm. And that's a theme, that's a belief that I hold that has felt true throughout my entire life and my entire story. There are things that I really thought that I wanted and then, you know, I don't get that thing. And I'm able to look back on it six months or a year or even many years later. And I realized that if that had thing had happened, if I had gotten what I thought I wanted, I wouldn't have gotten something much better. And that certainly proved to be true in this situation, but that's really just from experience. And I think just having that belief really helps you reframe, whether it's actually true or not, yeah. believing that rejection is protection just helps you shift your mindset to say, you know, on to the next thing, if not this, something better. Yeah. And going back to your point where you do the best that you can and let the chips fall where they may, everything will work out like it should in the end. And I feel like they certainly have for you so far. So, okay. So back to LinkedIn, let's talk about to the extent you want and to the extent you're either interested in, in rehashing your own interviewing story as to how it may or may not translate to anyone out there listening today. I guess, what were your expectations coming in? You know, I I didn't have a ton of prep for 
what a tech interview might be like, because again, I, I, I sort of feel soloed out in this experience, at least in terms of my college community and other communities that I've been a part of. I don't know a lot of people who work in tech. Uh, and I certainly don't, at the time, I didn't have mentors who I could kind of look to and say, what is this going to be like? So my best, you know, shot at that was Googling it. Mm. You know, I wish I'd known this show at the time because that would have been incredibly helpful. But uh, I think I was sort of expecting them to ask me, like, how many elephants fit in the Empire State Building or something <laughs> like that. But uh, one thing I did learn along the way is that sometimes interviews for uh, positions like mine can be a little bit different than if you might be going for an engineering position mm -hmm. or or something else. So I ended up going through five rounds of interviews. Mm -hmm. And it took multiple, you know, this is where I was saying it was a long process. It took multiple months. So, you know, there was an initial recruiter uh, interview. Um, then I started having peer interviews, interviews with folks that were already on the team at LinkedIn. Weeks go by, I had an interview with my now manager. And then my final interview, uh, this probably would be a more popular format if you are going to take on, I think learning and development is a really growing role and really in-demand role in tech. In fact, even right now where the economy is sort of all over the place. I see learning and development and trainer roles open both on the human resources side and then also kind of customer education side. So we need, say for software companies, it's like we need to teach our customers how to use this software. Really in demand and always going to be necessary, I think. So a common interview format is that you usually get anywhere between five and 30 minutes. I was given 20 minutes to present on any topic. And I presented to a group of peers, my current manager and my manager's manager. So mm. no pressure there. Mm. Sometimes you do it in person, like at my previous smaller tech company, that experience, I actually flew in person to give them a similar kind of presentation. In this case, it was virtual for LinkedIn. Uh, but you pick a topic for that you're going to teach about for 20 minutes. And that's exactly what I did. But I made sure to have a lot of fun with it. And I made sure that I could not be forgotten because there was no way I was going to get all the way. Because I had, I had done that twice before. I got all yeah. the way to the end and then was told, mm, you're not really what we're looking for right now. Thank you yeah. for applying. So I put together, you could do anything, right? A lot of times though, they, you don't have to teach a skill or like what you would traditionally think of a skill. You could literally teach how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It's not about what you teach. It's about how you present it. It's about how you instruct. And you're trying to give them a, a taste or a flavor of how you would give a presentation. So in my case, I thought, okay, I have 20 minutes. This is a group of you know, adult learners, as we call them in, in the industry I work with. Um, I'm going to teach about the one subject that I know the most about, which was email marketing, because I had done email marketing in my business. And that is what I trained when I was at the smaller tech company, HireLogic. I was an email marketing trainer. So I thought, I'm going to take 20 minutes and I'm going to teach them really key ways to make more sales with email. 
So basically how to write a sales email marketing campaign that's actually going to make some money. The catch was, as I was doing the presentation and sharing these kind of seven, I think I had seven tips, I made myself the thing for sale. It sounds a little strange describing it, but I made myself the call to action in the email marketing campaign. Mm. So for example, the subject line was Allison, which was my now manager's name. We found your next program manager, Lisa Jackson. Look nice. no further. Then it, it told the story, right? I go through the email and I'm giving tips, but the whole time it's talking about the, the sales copy of this example email is why I'm the perfect person for the fit for for this particular role. And I actually told the story. I, I got um, an article from Business Insider that was about Reed Hoffman, again, the co-founder of LinkedIn and how he went to the Putney School mm. and he used to you know, like hang out in the woods of Vermont. And that's where the creative roots of LinkedIn come from. And, you know, I said, Lissa's going to bring the same creative spirit that she gets from the Putney School and Reed's background to the role that she plays. And, you know, here's the four key reasons why. And I made the call to action to hire me. Mm, that is so smart. I, I love that. You'd like this, the mastermind. I wanted to ask you though, Lissa, do you think it was easier being in the remote setting versus like an in-person presentation? Everything else equal? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people would think that being virtual is a disadvantage, right? Because you don't get that 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 body language. But in some ways, I think it's less pressure hmm. to be in a virtual environment because there's all kinds of little things that you can do. Like, first of all, you can be wearing pajamas on the bottom and they wouldn't know. <laughs> You can also tape notes to your monitor and you can, you know, have different things that are not on screen. I think the key thing is, is that, you know, if you're going to do a virtual presentation, you've got to be able to show your personality through it. It's harder. So that means using your hands to express yourself if you're able. That means using the tone of voice and really keep, keeping people engaged. And it also means having great visuals. So I had a lot of fun with it even though it was in the virtual environment, I think that it made it easier in some ways. Yeah, I think it definitely worked given where you currently work, but I wanna ask you after you finished that presentation and maybe even during the presentation, because I feel like this could translate as well, could you tell that everything was going according to plan for the most part? Yeah, I mean, I had the sense that those people on the call with me felt my genuine, like I have genuine joy for teaching. Hmm. And if you've ever experienced teaching before and you've felt, I, I call it the helper's high, when I, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or to a group of people, I get so much dopamine and I feel so good when I'm able to help other people understand a concept or learn a tip or trick. And I did get that confirmed back to me because the recruiter was nice enough to call me back and actually give me some of the notes they had taken on that presentation. So I got real feedback. And I remember one of the pieces of feedback was, I think that our customers will have a lot of fun learning from Lissa. Mm. And that was my highest intention. Like, I don't care whether they remembered, you know, a key tip to stay out of a spam filter. Yeah. What I care about is how I made them feel yeah. in that presentation. And by focusing on that, and less on the details of what I was saying. I really think that that's what helped. Yeah. I also went so far as to do things like I 
Um, I put in pictures of myself as well. And I also made a GIF or GIF. I know there's a lot of debate about how to say that. <laughs> I say I say GIF, um, an animated image of myself into the campaign because that was one of the tips for you know helping to convert to sales is to have a GIF in your email. And I made a GIF of myself. It is that classic SpongeBob moment where he's saying imagination and making the rainbow with his hands. I made mm. myself doing that in GIF nice. format. So nice. I, I really left no stone unturned in terms of the effort that I put into it. And I, yeah. I also know that there's another side to that, which is it's sometimes controversial how much work goes into some of these presentations for tech companies. Yep. So I want to also add that I put a lot of hours into preparing for that. And I may not have been able to do that were I working 80 hours a week at Target. And that's that's something worth talking about, I think. Yeah, no, for sure. And that, but again, before I go there, I just want to commend you on that approach. Because even if, you know, I, maybe the majority of people listening are looking for a more technical role, and maybe that your story doesn't translate one-to-one, -one, but I think they can definitely play to their strengths and get creative where I guess the average applicant isn't. And that will really help to your point, show your personality, because I, I think the hiring manager or the person across the table or across the screen, you know, they don't want to hire a robot. They're, they're looking for a person with a personality to fill a role and someone that they want to work with on a daily basis. So that that's just, that's incredible. I forgot where I wanted to go with that, but you're, I'm still blown away by that approach and the presentation of selling Lisa Jackson in that email campaign. So did you get a standing ovation at the end of that? Uh, I think at that point I couldn't, that's part of the problem with virtual is like, it was harder for me to read the reactions directly through body language, but I did feel, I feel good. I, I felt really good about it. And as I always joke, I say that the conversion rate was 100%. <laughs> it's pretty good for uh, for that campaign. So I think that definitely paid off. And now I remember you had mentioned the, the time investment that you had made in that presentation that could have, even if it wasn't your fault per se, it could have yielded no results. And in a similar vein, I guess when I applied to the REACH apprenticeship, there was a take-home challenge that I probably spent probably at least 60 hours, Lissa, over the course of seven or eight days to, to put together the best project that I could. And those thoughts did go through my mind when I was doing that. It was, you know, I zoomed out a couple of times. I was like, you know, this could all be for nothing, but I was very quick to squash those and realize, A, I'm still learning things as I'm doing this project. And B, you know, LinkedIn, it's not, I guess it's a mutual thing because LinkedIn is going to invest not just two senior engineers to review the code with me for two and a half hours, but they're going to allocate a senior manager for an hour and another engineer for a 30 minute coffee chat. So, you know, they're putting up, I'm putting up and just like you, I did the best that I could. I did the best that I could through that interview process. And I think I had that same mindset you had where I've done the best I can. I'm going to let the chips fall where they may. Everything will work out in the end. And I certainly understand that that could have played out differently, but I'm still confident. And I, I tell people this and I truly believe it, where even if LinkedIn hadn't worked out, I'm confident that that approach would have translated somewhere else down the line. So I truly believe that that type of approach is one that, you know, you could feel ownership when you approach it from that perspective. Absolutely. I, I don't think the time is, is ever wasted. It actually reminds me, um, Sort of a, a funny thing. I, I have a Google Drive that's 
years and years and years old at this point. Like it, it's from pre-college. So it has a lot of stuff in it. And I was cleaning it out recently. And I found a project from probably 2013. And it was an outline for a course that I was going to create called LinkedIn for Students. Mm -hmm. And I remember like as soon as I brought it up, I had completely forgotten about it, but it was just a, a solo project, right? I didn't have this as an assignment from anybody, uh, but I sort of beat myself up for never actually bringing it into in, life. But I had really spent some time outlining all the different modules of this course and the sub lessons. Like I'm sure I put a few hours into at least figuring out what the structure of something like that would be, because I know a lot about LinkedIn or, you know, maybe at least 20% more than the average student about LinkedIn, which is, by the way, all it takes. Uh, and then I looked back and I, I was like, why did I ever beat myself up for not making that actually into a thing? Because that's pretty much exactly what I do now. You know, I host these three-day workshops that sales and marketing professionals come to to learn how to set up their LinkedIn profile, how to create thought leadership content on LinkedIn, and also how to use some of our other tools that we offer at LinkedIn to make more sales and to grow their their businesses and their companies. So I'm like, I, I just started it a couple of years ago and I didn't pick it up until now. It, it, I did bring it to life. It's just, it, it doesn't always happen overnight yeah. and it was never a waste. Yeah, no, 100%. And before we get to those, I want to talk about each and every one of these, I guess, side hustles, for lack of a better word, that you're working on. Before we do that, after this dynamite presentation that I know you gave, how long did it take before you got that call? How did that play out? What was going through your mind when you got that? I can't remember the exact amount of time until I got a call from the recruiter, but it wasn't that long. It's not like it took several more months. I think at most it was maybe one or two weeks after that presentation. I knew they were pretty close to the decision at that point, and that would vary based on everybody's experience. Um, but when I got the call from the recruiter and sort of got this this offering and uh, and heard all of the, you know, the benefits, you know, when we talk about tech, I, I think it's okay to dream about being in, in tech in part because there's an amazing benefits package that comes with it, right? Yep. And there's cool offices and there's cool perks. I think that's okay, right? That's not the only reason I dreamed of it, but I did fall on the floor. I don't think the recruiter knows this, but like <laughs> I fell on the floor and I immediately right after, you know, I basically said yes. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't even negotiate. I just said yes because it I was just so excited. Yeah. I immediately called my partner and I was like, you have no idea. Like, I have to tell you what just happened. Like, I just doubled my salary and I, I made my dream come true. Like, I made the thing that I wrote down five years ago now that felt kind of silly and maybe out of reach at the time come into reality. Like, it really yeah. happened. This is really, really going to happen. So it was a really, really big moment. And also a, it became proof that I can make what I set as intentions come to life in the same way that getting a full scholarship to college came to life. Like despite self-doubt, despite how long it might sometimes take longer than yeah. I want it to take, it's still possible. It just takes, takes some effort. Yeah. That I know for me, confidence, I guess, snowballs. And it took me a long time to realize that and to gain that confidence. But I think I can hear that in your story as well, even from, I don't know though, because you, you seem to exhibit confidence pretty early when you just 
assumed that everybody was wrong and rightfully so and they said you couldn't get that full scholarship and you you know you definitely showed them as well but uh, i do maintain that you know even even if you don't feel confident you have to quote unquote fake it until you make it i feel like you know small wins can compound and to just enjoy the journey i know it's easy to say that sitting where we're sitting but i truly believe that and going back to when i was going through the boot camp when i left my safe job and my wife lost her job during that period as well and she was pregnant with our first child it, you know it would have been very easy to adopt a a more toxic mindset where oh my god what am i gonna do if things didn't work out and i'm, I'm normally a very cautious person lissa but for whatever reason, I was completely confident in the plan, even though LinkedIn, well, honestly, LinkedIn wasn't even on the radar at that point when I was learning to code. But uh, yeah, I just feel like enjoying the journey as best you can and obviously providing for your family, doing what you have to do to survive, but not settling if you know that you're meant for more and if you can plot a course to that, similar to what you did when you were working those 60 to 80 hour weeks at Target. I just want to go back and, and highlight that. Definitely, definitely. And I, I look back now, it would have been nice to just launch into tech, you know, right out of college. But I also asked myself questions like, would I be the same person? Were that the case? I mean, the, the, the road that I had to take and the entrepreneur that it built in me to kind of go through struggle, right? To me, I, I think everybody's an entrepreneur, whether they work for a company or they work for themselves full-time or a combination thereof. Uh, I think entrepreneurs have to solve problems. And if you just go through life without any problems or not having very good problems, it's like you, you're less likely to come up with solutions. And now when I work with people who are trying to find their passion and their direction, usually they're up against a very similar roadblock that I saw back then. And and the amount of empathy and the amount of perspective that I can bring to that and say, you know, here's how I went from being a retail manager at Target and br broke into tech, which is not a traditional path by any means. I don't yes. know a lot of other people who have done that uh, and say, it's possible. Here's how I did it. It, you know, that's now part of my story. And I don't think that I would trade it. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I often say that I wouldn't change anything in the past. And I guess it's easy to say that because as far as we know, we can't change anything that we've done in the past. But to your point, I agree. I feel like it makes us appreciate where we are more. And it's just so exciting because five years from now, we have no idea what either of this looks like. And that's part of the fun. As long as we're having fun and continuing to grow, I feel like I know for me, and it sounds like for you as well, that's the, the name of the game is just continued growth while helping and feeling that fulfillment. So now you're a real live program manager at LinkedIn. Let's let the audience live vicariously through you, Lisa. What's your typical day in the life of if there is one? Ooh, I love that question. So there really isn't a typical day because I do a lot of different things. Um, I'm involved in our live webinar program under LinkedIn Sales Solutions. So sometimes I'm, you know, on live for an hour talking to a few hundred people about how to send better in-mails on LinkedIn or how to use our tool. I, I teach a lot about Sales Navigator, which is an additional add-on tool to LinkedIn that's kind of designed for either business owners or sales reps to kind of use data that's within LinkedIn to find people and, and reach out to them. Uh, so sometimes it's one of those live trainings. I love those. 
I also create some of our recorded courses. So I have a course about InMail uh, that I created uh, last year that is, I think it's up to about 5,000 students who have gone through that course. Um, and the other part of the time I'm working on, a, you know, where I get my program manager title from is I manage a program called Instruct, uh, in as in LinkedIn Instruct. And those are three-day, very intensive workshops where um, I have, sometimes it's executives, sometimes it's sort of sales and marketing leaders. They come into this sort of, it's almost like an accelerator program. And I'm teaching them all about LinkedIn and, and LinkedIn for sales. And it's Overall, it's 12 hours of instruction over three days. So it's very, it's intensive for the people in attendance. It's also intensive for me, but I absolutely love it. Hmm. And I get to certify them through the process and, and kind of lead them into the future of what using LinkedIn will look like to build their personal brands and to just have more success in their roles. So it's really the perfect thing for me because I get right. that helpers high. I do live instruction, which I love. So Really, I have a lot of different hands and different projects. And so it's a mixture of creating courses or producing live courses and events, uh, you know, for LinkedIn. And I hope that's something I stick with through my experience at LinkedIn. Uh, I'm probably most passionate about creating content on LinkedIn. And so that's kind of where my mind is at in terms of how I might grow at LinkedIn is how I yeah. can continue working to help people with that. And I just kind of do it personally on my own LinkedIn profile as well. Yeah, I can tell you definitely enjoy what you're doing, which is all you can really hope for, I feel like in life in general and certainly in a career. Do you wanna talk about the other stuff that you're working on? I think before we recorded, I think you had mentioned a podcast. I know you've mentioned newsletters. What else do you have going on that you wanna share? Yeah, I, I I can never stop myself from the creative projects that, you know, I, I say they happen on the side. I mean, ultimately, it all kind of gets balanced out. They happen after hours is probably a better way of putting it. But I have a personal brand. So Lissa Lee Jackson is a personal brand. I, I, I also call it Hey LJ. So I've got HeyLJ.com. And, you know, through that, I'm really teaching primarily women how to build personal brand businesses, really how to, you know, create a business that is just yourself and share your story in a way that inspires people, but can also be monetized. Yeah. And so I primarily do that through teaching uh, women how to build online courses, which of course is something that I'm very knowledgeable about at this point, and then also self-publishing books. I wanted to ask you about that course that you found when you were going through your Google Drive archive. Do you plan to actually turn that into a, a course, given that you had so much time and effort put into it way back when? I might. You know, sort of what's on my mind right now is is maybe putting together a course that's about thought leadership, especially for women. I think on LinkedIn, I see a gap in the number of of women thought leaders who are out there kind of posting their content and, and sharing. And I see a, an abundance of, of men, which is great. I, I follow a lot of them. I'm inspired by a lot of them, but I think there's probably a lot of women who could be sharing their voice and I want to help them uh, do exactly that. So it might not be specifically about LinkedIn because I have a lot of free resources that people can access that I produce from a LinkedIn perspective, but 
um, generally about about thought leadership as well. Yeah. If people are listening and are interested in either one of your courses or maybe getting in contact with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, you can uh, find me at heylj.com. Um, I also uh, would encourage you to go check out the Create Her podcast. So it's like creator, but it has her okay. on the end. So that's my podcast where I kind of share the behind the scenes of how to do things like self-publish a book or uh, create a course. So I love sharing my own stories. And also it's just recently launched. So there's going to be some upcoming stories about fellow women creators who have forged an interesting path in, in entrepreneurship. Yeah. I'll be sure to add links in the show notes for the audience. Anyone listening that's interested in that sounds great. And Lisa, you have an amazing story. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about today or anything you think someone out there that wants to break into tech might need to hear? Mm. Really, the one thing I can think of is to write it down. Mm. Write it down. It sounds so silly because you hear all of the things that I did and I took action on to get here. And that is absolutely part of the equation. But it really all started with an intention. Mm. And I think writing it down was a powerful way to solidify that intention. And now it's something that I'm able to go back to and trace when I first set that intention. And specifically, when I write out intentions, I like to write them as if they either will or already have happened. So mm. I wrote in my notebook, I will work for my dream company. And then I put in parentheses LinkedIn or Google. Uh, and so, you know, there's a bunch of studies that show that writing something down does, in fact, help you. It's a it's a predictor of how likely you are to actually achieve that thing. So if there's something that you're going for, write it down. You don't have to share it with anybody. You don't have to be public about it, but you never know where that could lead you. Yeah, no, I love that. And I, on that last point, do you or when would you advise sharing that goal? Because I know I've done that to an extent where you share like when I switched careers and it was almost like putting friends and family on notice where it was additional, I guess, emphasis on me to do it just because I had put them on notice. So I guess, I don't know if you have any guidelines or people out there listening when it might be a good idea to do that and when maybe that might be a detriment. Mm. If you have any thoughts there. That's interesting. I, I think it is situational and of course, personal. I think the way that I've adopted it more recently is that I work in silence and I show up when I have the results. Um, mostly because I think when you're trying to work in a world where you're calling your shots, it's like, I want to call my shot when I'm pretty confident that I'm going to make it. And sometimes I just don't know. And that way, because you know, I hope that in hearing my story, folks realize that it wasn't linear. There are ups and downs. There are moments where I really doubted myself. Things took longer than I maybe anticipated. And what I wouldn't have wanted to create for myself is, you know, some kind of reality where I've told everybody, like, imagine me going back to 2016 and saying, hey, everybody, like, I'm going to work at LinkedIn. Well, if you went forward four years in the future and I still don't work at LinkedIn, it, it's you maybe put yourself in a place where people are like, well, she said that four years ago and it's still not true. Yeah. So she's probably never going to work for LinkedIn or they create their own stories. And it's very likely that you could start to adopt other people's perceptions mm -hmm. of things versus 
showing up and being yep. able to share the story from a place of power and say, look, I wrote this in my my journal five years ago and now I made it happen. It's like I own that narrative. So yeah. I guess what I'm sharing there is that I wouldn't put pressure on a need to share it. I love your perspective, which is that it can create accountability with those who you know are going to cheer you on. Like yeah. I know my partner, if I share a goal with him, that's a safe place to do it. And yeah. you know he's going to believe in me and not start bringing up doubt. So basically just be very careful who you share it with if you're going to. Yeah. No, I love that. And I, I definitely learned something there as well. So Lisa, this has been absolutely amazing. I love your story and I'm definitely looking forward to watching it continue to play out. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's show, please consider leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Spotify. It's a free way you can support the show and help other people just like you find the story and others like it. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. And most importantly, if you know someone that might be interested in breaking into tech, tell them about the show.